I, I found it to be one of those welcoming places. I couldn't believe getting here. The amount of people that took me under their wing in community, in the broader city, to make introductions, to open doors. And I've observed that throughout my time here in Chicago, that there's a certain expectation about that, about, you know, one, you help our other citizens in the city and you partner. And, and uh, when someone asks you, you say, yes, I'll, I'll help out and I'll figure out a way to do this. And I love that part of Chicago. Welcome to Stay and Fight, a podcast about extraordinary Illinoisans who have made profound impacts in their communities and who, despite all the issues in the state, are dedicated to staying here and fighting for its future. I'm Matt Pabrocki, president of the Illinois Policy Institute. And on today's episode, we bring you Josh Hale. Josh is the president and CEO of Big Shoulders Fund, which invests $20 million a year to rescue inner-city kids who are left behind by failing in dangerous public schools in Chicago, empowering more than 5,000 of them with scholarships to attend Catholic schools that are better and safer. Big Shoulders also directly supports the schools, rescuing dozens of them from closing at a time when too many are across the country. Josh is staying, and he's fighting for a lot of Chicago families who can't even afford to flee. So he's making life better right here in the city we all love. Let's get started. All right. Ready, ready, Josh. Thank you uh, for joining me here today. I want to start from the beginning. Uh, where'd you grow up? What were, what'd your parents do? What were they like? And what was that experience like for you? Uh, so I grew up in the Boston area, just north of the city, uh, Danvers, which nobody ever knows. It's near Salem, which is uh, you know famous for their, the witch, witch trials and uh, great Halloweens. Um, I'm one of five children, middle child, which probably explains a lot. My parents both from the Boston area, uh, their first generation going to college. Uh, my dad was uh, ended up in Vietnam and he was rusty to get through college. I saw him early on give to a lot of Vietnam veterans, whether it was through organizations that helped Vietnam vets, but also, you know, in restaurants. I remember a restaurant one night and a Vietnam vet came in, a homeless guy, and they were trying to push him out of the restaurant. And the guy was, you know, coping however he coped and medicating however he medicated. And I remember watching my dad write a check to him, which is kind of weird to think, writing a check to this guy who was effectively homeless and um, in the restaurant. It was just the weirdest. But I just, you know, I think that idea of, you know, it takes a community and you got to give back. And that was something that my mother as well instilled in us uh, through her own work as well. My mom is one of nine. She had lived in East Boston for the early part of her youth, but she had been in college and she dropped out uh, to go back essentially, you know, work to help the family and then to help my grandmother since she raised the rest of the kids. And when she worked, when she left college, she worked, she's not a nurse, but she drew blood and things like that. And so she had some experience working in clinics and doctor's offices and the like. And so she was friends with the woman in our parish that was going down to Haiti. And she would go with these nurses primarily and work in clinics and home for sick and dying children. And and so she was down there on a couple of trips and she kind of said, hey, I got five kids at home, that's labor. And so suddenly first my sisters went down with them and then I was in a couple of trips and we would go home down there and stay and there's a home for essentially homeless boys. They would come in off the street and uh, the way that they you know, supported this was people would come down and stay there and pay to stay in this house, this home. 
um, and go out and work in, in mission, but they also raise money in the States and different things. But so we would um, raise money through our parish. And so it went from my sisters to my sisters and I, to my other siblings, to people in our high school and our parish. And we would go down and spend two weeks. It was amazing, you stayed in this home and it was um, concrete. Yes, you, you were living, so we washed your clothes in a bucket on the rooftop of this building, hung them out to dry. Um, and I, my mother was kind of an iron fist at home growing up and it, pretty strict. Down there, I, it was like bizarre. She gave me so much fruit. I remember going out at night with these boys in this house. And like, uh, I think it was in eighth grade, I had my first beer and they, you know, were at some festival out there and, and uh, there was no carding, I can assure you. Um, and so I look back I'm like, Ma, how did you let us <laughs> do all these things? But we, we would work in, you know, different religious orders and groups, home for sick and dying children, shelters for homeless children and orphanages and digging holes for latrines and bathrooms or the home of the sick and dying children was probably the most traumatic. I remember going in there, just you, you just like walk into a room and children inflicted with, you know, all sorts of diseases and effectively dying and you held children and just, you know, try to comfort them. And I would, I, I took to singing a lot because I didn't know to do other than I'd cry if I, if not, um, and singing to the children and trying to do anything to comfort these, these babies essentially. So that, you know, my mother was a uh, road where my dad said, I always work to get out of poverty. And the first place you do is take our kids back to the worst <laughs> place. In the, and, God uh, bless her. and he loved it. Uh, and it went on in, until, um, my mother was running this out of our kitchen. You know, it was just, it was out of our parish in the basement. It's just, she, in our high school. And so at one point we were, I wasn't down on this trip. My sisters were and a number of other people from our high school and they were there and it was one of the, uh, the coups. And I think his baby doc was overthrown and the Tantan Makuts, which is kind of a, you know, a, a secret military, a secret part of the military, kind of the, um, the enforcers. And they, uh, were taking people out, you know, as they, you know, kind of leaders. And so they were in this house, you know, the world is now watching United American halt air, you know, flights into the country. My mother's down there in this house, all these young people, they can hear gunshots outside and they're kind of in lockdown mode. And um, people start calling my dad, these parents are like, so, you know, what, what's the plan here? My dad's, you know, my dad's like traveling for work and he's like, uh, you know, trying to answer these questions. I don't know, I'm watching the news like you. And I think at that point they thought, you know, this has uh, probably gotten bigger than us. And there's a lot of fear on my dad's part that there'd be lawsuits against the Hale family for, for all these things and this. Uh, so uh, that was kind of the stopping of my mother running massive trips. But, but I, I would say that impact it had in our lives was, you know, profound and, and, and still playing out. And I look at my siblings and things they're involved with and, my parents and everything else, it was it was profound. But I do look back sometimes and I think, you know, everything from her running the house with an iron fist to me going out, wandering around Haiti by myself, Port-au-Prince, the city, and yeah, it's kind of, it's it's crazy, but it, it, it was a life-changing experience. When you think of what that impact, I mean, obviously there's, there's the very clear philanthropy, you know, from both seeing your father writing checks yeah, yeah. at a restaurant to a homeless person, to your mother saying, Hey, in our free time, what we're going to do is we're going to go serve other people. Can you can you dig a little bit more on that impact that it had on you and your family? You know, for me, if I look back, you know, it was after college, I spent two years overseas with Jesuit Volunteer International. Their motto was always ruin for life. And it was this idea that um, in experiencing, you know, being part of a mission and walking with and you know, learning a lot, probably more about yourself and, and how um, insignificant in some ways you are, 
and uh, that you don't have the answers and that you got to listen to community or listen to others and the answers aren't in your head. They're usually out someplace. That being part of a mission is one of the most soul-filling things. And I think when I finished my judge volunteer experience, I came back. I actually worked in a boutique consulting firm for a few years. And I loved it. I learned a ton. But the part that I look back most from those experiences, my mom, my dad, and just, you know, being part of a mission was that how much uh, joy I found in it and that those were my happiest moments. And that was when I kind of shifted from a track I thought I was on for my life, being a consultant to working in a mission. I literally was, I was working in a consultant firm and I was starting to look at business school because that was what everybody around me seemed to be doing. That's the next step. You go to business school and Frank, I got a call from a Jesuit friend about this mission in Chicago. And I, I you know, I, I didn't probably see it in my mind that I was going to make a jump to this. It was, a, it was to raise money and do PR. I was 27 years old. I'd never done either one of those things. I didn't know a lot at all. And so I happened to be in Chicago for work a few weeks later. And my friend had said, this Jesuit friend had said, just go down and visit the school. Meet, you know, you should learn more about it. And so I uh, was here like uh, on a Friday for work and I stayed over the weekend. I visited some buddies and uh, told them I was going to visit the school, Chris Ray, and they all said, oh my God, yeah, we know that place. The students coming to work, what a great new model. The Jesuits, blah, blah, blah. you know, there was all sorts of energy around. I'm like, what is this thing? Since 1996, Crystal Ray has served inner city kids on the southwest side of Chicago with a safe and rigorous high school college prep education. But it's not just any school. They designed into their model a corporate work-study program where the students work entry-level jobs at firms like J.P. Morgan Chase and PwC. Four students share one full-time job, each working one day per week, and then attend classes the remaining days. The firms pay Cristo Ray for their students' work, covering roughly two-thirds of the school's expenses. And the students gain valuable experience and skills that open doors to incredible professions that might have otherwise been out of reach. When I went to the school on Monday to visit, you know, and to kind of talk about this job, I didn't really, going into it, uh, the trip, I didn't think anything, but as I got close to it, I was like, oh my God, this is kind of interesting. And when I met the founding president, Father John Foley, who uh, doesn't know a stranger, is beloved by so many, he's one of my closest friends, mentors of all time. I, I remember meeting with him and immediately I thought, I want to I want to be, I want to be with this guy. I like, you know, his vision and his energy and his belief, like just, you know, almost to a fault is the beauty of his like, We'll figure it out. Let's we gotta keep going. And then I, I I think I shifted from learning about something to wanting to get the job. Like, oh my God, how do I sell to get this? And so he ended up saying, Can you stay? Can you push a flight back? Can you stay a little longer? So then I met with, you know, two board members and all of a sudden I was flying out that night and he said, Let's get together in a couple weeks and continue. And he happened to be out on the East Coast in Providence for a wedding, or actually the Cape, but he was flying out of Providence on Sunday morning. So I drove down and met him on a Sunday morning. Uh, we met at uh, like 7.30, and this is, you know, back when you go in the airports and beat someone. So I uh, met him for breakfast at um, the airport, and um, I remember saying at that point, you know, we had talked a little job, and he, he was offering the job, and I was trying to say, right, but I, you know, here's what I'm earning, and this is what you're offering. Can we bridge? And I, I always joke, I think I went backwards. I think I, I somehow screwed that whole thing up, but it just didn't seem to matter. So in terms of a good plan, I thought I was going to go out there for two years. I remember seeing my dad, I'm going to do this two years, great experience, and then go back to my plan of going to business school. But that was my plan. And then I came out here and, you know, kind of got into the, the mission and fell in love with it. 
Two years turned into five years, and you know at that point the Christian model had started to take off, and we were part of this, you know, opening schools up in different parts of the country. And a guy B.J. Casson had given ten million to help that replication, and the Gates Foundation followed. And I, through the Gates Foundation, the woman that was the program officer is now my sister-in-law, which is a tricky transition. So I, I got to know her, and she kept saying you should be my sister. And I thought, well, God, I'll meet her sister, and you know,、uh, we'll date, and then she'll. Will break up. She'll hate me, and then we'll lose the funding, and、That's、I'll、it. be in trouble. And this will. This is. I, this is a high yes, risk play. Yeah, That's a high risk play. So I avoided it for a long time. And then through other relationships, my wife at the time was a reporter of the Tribune. So she,、um, a woman that used to work at the Tribune,、uh, was a teacher at Greece Ray, and somehow they had made a connection on this. So she set us up, and、uh, I remember joking with her on our first date. I said, "You know, we got to get married because that's the only way this works. Your sister and everything else." And、um, uh, as it turns out. I think, you know, a year later we were engaged, so it was a pretty quick process. But at that point, I was like, God, I had still had debt from school and everything else. I had no money, and I was trying to figure out how to buy a ring. And I'm thinking, this is a this is an upward battle. And so at that point, I said, I'm going to go back to consulting. And so I went to a guy, John Krogan, who he and his wife were two of the original, really major benefactors of starting Crease Array. And so I went to him, and his wife was the chair of the board at the time. And I said, so we got to have kind of a wall here. You know, John Krogan, you. Uh, implying at Kellogg, you write a letter of recommendation for me. You, you're on the board there. He said sure, and and so I started prepping for the test and everything else. And so like, I don't. It was probably a month later. He came to me. And he said, you know, forget business school. Big Shoulders Fund is looking for someone. That's you know, you you already know a lot of people. You don't need business school. You should go there. Big Shoulders Fund was hiring for an executive director, but Josh didn't think he stood a chance. You know, I knew what Big Shoulders Fund was. Believe me, I, they had helped Chris Ray start and everything else. But I didn't think I had a shot in Kingdom Come, and then I went and met with the co-chairs. I was nervous as can be, and I ended up getting、uh, the job, which was remarkable. So you obviously you you get that opportunity to go work at Big Shoulders Fund. Can you start from the beginning? How was Big Shoulders Fund started? You know, what was the mission of it? What was the goal?、Uh, and what have you? It's been thirty-six years. Is that how long? Yeah, it's a great way. So what have you done? I just said excited to think about the number of years. <laughs> yes, thirty-six years. I started the math in my head. So what? It, What what does that look like for the past thirty six years? It started with Cardinal Bernardine was head of the Catholic Church. He had these schools, which were he saw as an in, intrinsic part of the the Catholic mission to be of service、uh, to those in under resourced communities. And he and、um, he, but he was facing financial challenges and saying, I, I need to define a, a funding mechanism for these schools. And so he had gone to at the onset. Four business leaders in the city who are all Catholic:、uh, Jim O'Connor, Annie McKenna, Barry Sullivan, Ed Stephan, who are the heads of various organizations, well-known civic leaders, and part of the Catholic Church and, and involved. And said to them, over a number of conversations, these schools mean a lot. We need to raise a hundred million dollars to endow them effectively. Would you help to do that? Well, you know, a hundred million dollars is a lot today in 2022. Never mind back in like. Early '80s, you know, when they first started talking about '82, '83, and、um, but the, the four of them agreed to create what they, the time they called a resource committee of the archdiocese to explore this option. And so, if you talk to them, there's lots of breakfasts and meetings with the cardinal and other people, and gathering data and information.、Um, going out and frankly, early, I've looked through a lot of historic documents. Going out and talking to community, what do these schools mean to you? What are the, you know, what is how important is this? Because if it's not important to the community, then it's not important、uh, to anybody. 
But it was it was in that 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 moment where that those civic leaders came together after talking to the community and working together with Carter Burning that this the birth of Big Shoals Fund happened. And it wasn't to raise 100 million. I think if you look at Jim O'Connor, he said our, our expectations were a lot lower. We were trying to raise, I think they said something like five million in the first five years. And what they found was it, it took off a lot faster. They started raising money at a much faster clip that there was belief in that if an effective education is only for the wealthy, then we will never succeed as a, a city, a state, as a nation. And so the equalizer is, you know, great education that prepares you for um, success in the future, that you believe it, that you have confidence, you have agency, you have the skill set to be successful. There is something really awesome about saying, you know, here's this huge goal of $100 million. And I always hearken back to the 60s when you had, you had dreamers, people who had these big dreams. You had JFK saying, by the end of the century, we're going to put a man on the moon. Yeah. This, this impossible concept that everybody said, there's just no way this can get done. You know, you had Martin Luther King Jr. going in and saying, I have a dream and here's what my dream looks like. And it's it's almost hard for us to think about what America actually looked like at that time, because to a large extent, there has been a fulfillment in huge aspects of that dream, especially yeah. in the South. Uh, and when you look at and when you look at education in in Illinois and Chicago, well, across the country to say, look, we're going to raise one hundred million dollars for Catholic institutions, institutions who are who are losing individuals going to them, but have primarily served historically as the saving grace of a lot of these communities. You talk about, you know, the immigrant Irish, you talk about the immigrant Italian and what they had inside of these huge poverty slum areas was a strong Catholic church that helped lift people up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, for somebody to come in and say, look, our dream is to to rebuild that, right? To find these places and to help lift people up and show that their outcomes can change. That's a huge dream. And it's cool that individuals can say, we're going to dream big right here in Chicago. And they've knocked $100 million out of the park. Yeah. Right? That seems like the hard part. And they they crushed that. Crushed that over $500 million now to date. I mean, it really is, like I would, the, uh, it's remarkable. But too many schools in Chicago still kept closing. 148 of them between 1984 and 2004. So Josh and Big Shoulders decided to do even more. They now support their network of 72 Chicago schools in almost every way you can imagine, helping them with best practices and talent development in leadership, marketing, operations, finances, measurement, curriculum, everything. They even brokered a deal with the archdiocese to take on direct responsibility for 30 of the schools that are at the greatest risk of shutting down. The end result of all of this, for the kids that Big Shoulders helps, is that 94% of them graduate high school versus only 83% of Chicago public school students. And a recent survey of Big Shoulders Fund alumni found that their graduates work, study, vote, donate, and volunteer at rates higher than their peers. The data is impressive, but the stories are even better. Can you talk to me about some of the individuals? I want you to think about some of the people that you've seen come up uh, who have gotten scholarships or assistance because of the Big Shoulder Funds and and think of their their faces and their names. And can you tell us uh, maybe a story or two about individuals who have, who have been in tough upbringings, uh, but then uh, 
you've come into community with them, right? And then partnered alongside them. And and what have, can you give me some examples of what those outcomes have been? There's a lot of stories. The one that, oh my God, jumps so quickly to the front of my mind is just because it's it's in some ways so recent. So uh, Ronnie, uh, Nicole grew up on Chicago's East Side. So down in the old steel, some call it Rust Belt, but down you know where the steel mills were and are. And she has a story of, you know, there's she talks about it, I, you know, in, in terms of the challenges she encountered both when family and just how that affected substance abuse around her and in, in, in the, you know, uh, some violence in the community and uh, drug trade and so on and so forth. Her mother uh, worked in and still does in, in retail. I think she was, um, you know, now at Walmart, I forget where she was before, but she talked to her mom and, and um, how hard she saw her working. And she has a couple of sibling sisters and, and the sacrifice her mother made to put them at St. Michael the Archangel. And she was a big show scholar as well as her siblings. And a guy in our team got to know the family very well, the mom and the, the, these three daughters. And there's people on our board that were involved with the school as patrons and they got to know the family and other families there. <clears throat> so she went on to uh, St. Francis Sales High School, which is one of our, our, our you know, just fantastic schools in the South Side um, that uh, continues to thrive and uh, she succeeded there. She was kind of a little go-getter, I think, that teachers that uh, knew her then, even people on our team, remember as this go-getter and um, really hustled and, and loved the community, did a lot in the community as well. She went off to college. Um, she decides to go to education. She works in a couple of large public schools and has a great experience, learns a lot and develops, but has this great yearning to go back to the community where she grew up and to, to be part of something that was changing, not just a school, but a community and place that she knew. So she was probably recruited and chased to become the principal and CEO of St. Francis de Sales. That's awesome. Uh, but she jumped in at the, school, the time school was facing some challenges. And since she arrived, it's like a rocket ship. And she arrived just before COVID. So imagine taking a job at that time in, in, in education, a new, in a new role being the principal place that had to make some changes. And, and I watched her in the height of COVID, uh, outdoor hot chocolate events. So everybody's outside, they're freezing cold. I went down a couple of times. Uh, she hand delivered every single acceptance to every single family in the community and went out and told them who she is. You know, Ronnie, I grew up here and come back and leave the school. She's gotten involved with business incubators that are trying to form down there with um, social, um, you know, building communities uh, that help folks that need support. She's got her students involved in all those things in a way. And because that enrollment has grown exponentially, more students and families say, we want our children there. And I would say she's impacted Big Show's institution to think more about how we are reaching out to our alumni and chasing them down, begging them to, to lead these works. And she's just, a, she's one of the most wonderful people I've I've come to know she's an inspiration. Um, through all her coming back, I've gotten to reconnect with her mom, who I'd probably met a number of times years and years ago. Uh, in her family, everybody knows them down the neighborhood. And I just look at, like when I think about community-based organization, that's where it happens. It's because of her relationship in community and listening to and showing that she is not just leading a school, she's part of a movement to strengthen the entire community. And watching her do that is remarkable. I love it. Uh, Josh, so my last question is about staying and fighting in Illinois. So you're a guy who was born in the, in the Northeast, in the Boston area, but you've moved Chicago and you built your life and your career. 
and not just quite frankly for yourself and your family, but to lift up other people in Chicago and work together in community and build that up. Uh, why do you stay and fight here? We really love Chicago. We are diehard Chicagoans. You know, your reference coming here to lift up other souls. I think I came here to lift up my own soul. That in being part of this work, I have found something so fulfilling uh, and soul-filling. Partnering with business, civic, and philanthropic leaders, partnering with all these great communities around Chicago, that I am so fulfilled in, in seeing the fabric of this city tighten and get stronger because of those relationships and how much I've benefited. I've learned so much from so many different you know, parents and guardians and teachers and principals and CEOs and heads of this and civic leaders and you know so many others that I feel like this city has given me so much and this state has given me so much that I count my lucky stars that I found my way here and, and I, I found it through one of those welcoming places. I couldn't believe getting here. The amount of people that took me under their wing in community and the broader city to make introductions, to open doors. And I've observed that throughout my time here in Chicago that there's a certain expectation about that, about, you know, one, you help our other citizens in the city and you partner. And, and uh, when someone asks you, you say, yes, I'll, I'll help out and I'll figure out a way to do this. And I love that part of Chicago that, that really is, it's almost a browbeating from, you know, those ahead of you uh, saying, hey, you know, it's your turn, do something, get on, get on board. And I, I love what you said about people helping each other out. Cause I always, we have conversations with neighbors and I said, it's, it's the smallest big city in the world because great description. you can, you can get anywhere, you can go to anything. And if you need help, you can access just about anybody. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I think that the degrees of separation between us and, and honestly, anybody else in the yeah. city are so small where I think New York, you got no shot at that. LA, you got no shot at that. Chicago, you know, I mean, it's there is yeah. that communal feeling of we're all in this together. It's exactly, you know, I've seen our schools have huge success and then have huge challenges and we're trying to ride through it with them in the community that say, all right, we're gonna make it through this. What do we do? How do we get back on course? Let's, let's work together and in the same way. I see that about Chicago that, you know, we've had some enormously high periods and we've had challenging periods and we'll find our way through this, through those relationships and partnerships and the very fabric that makes this city so great, the diverse backgrounds and experiences and how we got here, but all loving this city and this region so very much. I love it. Well said. Uh, Josh Hale, the, the president and CEO great. of Big Shoulders Fund, uh, really one of the great Chicago institutions. And when we talk about what does the future look like for Chicago? Uh, it involves a lot of institutions, civic leaders, philanthropists, businesses coming together. Uh, and I think a big part of that is the Big Shoulders Fund and what you're yes, doing to rise We're lucky to be part of it. I love it. Come with lucky stars. Thanks for, for inviting me on and for highlighting lots of great work around the city and the state, frankly, and all the good work you guys do. That was awesome. Josh, that was Thank awesome. you very much. Great job, brother. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Stay and Fight.